Welcome. Good afternoon. My name is Dwayne Crum, and uh, we're going to talk about HIV and AIDS and AIDS education, uh, which is a topic that I enjoy talking about. And so I, I hope that uh, you will all be willing to participate uh, because I like to do this in a way where everybody's involved. But before we get started, let's involve the most important part, person in this by praying. Father, thank you for being here. Thank you for calling us here and for this opportunity to share time together with you and with one another and to learn from you. I'd ask, Lord, that you would call to my mind the things that are important to be said and erase from my mind the things that aren't important and that we would accomplish whatever it is you have planned, regardless of what I may have thought of doing. This is yours. We're here to serve you and to learn from you and to love you and to love each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you a little introduction of myself. Uh, I'm, I'm going to trip over this thing and probably kill myself. Anyway, uh, I got involved in studying HIV and AIDS back in 1985. Not because I wanted to. Actually, it was against my will. Uh, I'd been working on a temporary assignment with the Billy Graham team, and a friend of mine knew it was temporary and called me one night and said, have you figured out yet what you're going to do next? And I said, no. He said, well, I met a United States congressman today. And I said, really? I've never met a congressman. He said, yeah, he's looking for a press secretary. I said, congressmen have press secretaries? I never knew that. He said, yeah, you'd be a good one. I said, no, 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 no. Well, long story short, that was a Thursday night. The next Tuesday, I was a congressional press secretary. <laughs> I, I, my first day on the job, the con congressman called me into his office and he said, now, Dwayne, you need to understand, everybody that works for me has at least one issue they study for me, because I can't study everything. And so my mind started a list. You know, this is going to be fun. He says, your issue is HIV-AIDS. I didn't want to study it. I mean, I knew I didn't have it. I wasn't going to get it. Nobody I knew had it or was going to get it. It wasn't my problem, but it was my job. So I spent the next two years in the United States Congress studying sub the subject of HIV and AIDS from every possible angle. And then I left to go to work for an evangelist who also does high school programs out of Fort Worth, Texas. And I thought, this will be great. We can do evangelism. I'll go to the schools with Dave, and I can forget all about AIDS. And my first week with him, we are having dinner one night, and he said, you know, Dwayne, I really think we need to do something with all this knowledge you have about HIV and AIDS. And I thought, God, you set me up. <laughs> so I got involved in HIV AIDS as a divine setup. And I'm so glad. I've now had the opportunity to travel all over the United States, to speak to students in 38 different states, and now I get to travel all over the world teaching people about HIV and AIDS. And I love it. And I think it's something that's really, really important. I want to ask you a question. If you were doing HIV-AIDS education, what do you think would be the goals of HIV-AIDS education? Just let's make a list. What are the goals? What would you be trying to accomplish in doing education about HIV and AIDS? Prevention, okay. Okay, so that relates to prevention is spread. Behavior change. Behavior change. 
Oh boy, now you're, you're moving me right into something I wasn't ready to talk about yet, but I'm going to, John. Behavior change is a word I've heard several times already in this conference, and I hear it all the time in HIV and AIDS. And it is one of my hot buttons, because I think it's a mistake for us to think about our goal in AIDS education as behavior change. Here's the reason. When we think that our purpose is behavior change, what does that make us believe about the people in our audience? That everybody in the audience is doing things that puts them at risk, right? If I, don't, if I believe my goal is behavior change, then that makes me believe that every one of you is doing things that put you at risk of infection and you need to change. Is it true? Are all of you doing things that put you at risk of infection? No. Unless you're talking to a group of commercial sex workers, probably virtually any audience you talk to, there are going to be some people who are not doing things that put them at risk of infection. True? All right. Are you going to be more successful in convincing people not to change what they're doing or to change what they're doing? Are you going to be more successful in in reinforcing existing behaviors or getting people to change their behaviors? Reinforcing existing behaviors is hundreds of times more successful than changing risky behaviors. True? So if I say my goal is behavior change, I, I forget about the most the most powerful tool in my arsenal, which is reinforcing healthy behaviors. Not only that, but I phrase everything in ways that suggest to everybody in the audience that everybody's doing things that put them at risk. What's that do? That motivates people to do things that put them at risk so that they can be like everybody else. Everybody's doing it. I should be too. So you see, talking I don't mean to be attacking you, but talking about behavior change leads us in the wrong direction in the way we think about our audience, and that's so key. It also leads us in the wrong direction in the phrasing that we use, the terms we use, the language, the way that we approach issues. So rather than behavior change, how about if we talk about Influencing behaviors, which influencing includes both reinforcing healthy behaviors and changing risky ones. Does that make sense? Okay. What what else? What other goals do we have in HIV education? All right, stigma. We've got to overcome stigma and the discrimination that flows from it. Right. There's huge problems. Stigma is one of the one of the number one reasons that HIV continues to spread. Yeah, it plays a huge role. What else are we trying to do in HIV education? All right, lowering the incidence. So that again relates to the prevention end of the thing, but. So making it a subject that we can talk about, including being able to talk about issues relating to sexuality, which is taboo in so many cultures. I was in Gabon in February of this year, and the first day of the seminar, 
I do a five-day seminar. The first day, uh, something came up related to sexual behaviors, and, and I asked a question, and one of the ladies said, we are not allowed to talk about those things. It is taboo to talk about those subjects here. So we spent a lot of time talking about why is this taboo and why is it important to, free, to be free talking about these issues. And it was fascinating because on Wednesday of that week, my wife and another gal were with me, and I said to the, the women in the, that were participating in the seminar, I said, now there may be subjects that you've been uncomfortable talking about because of the men here and that you would like to get together with these two ladies and just talk among yourselves as, as women about some of these issues that aren't comfortable talking about with men in present. And the same lady that said it's taboo to talk about sex said, we've already talked about everything in this group. We, God's given us the freedom to talk about anything here, so we don't need to talk about anything separately. We're comfortable talking about everything. So in three days, God took, took them from, we can't talk about that, to there's nothing we can't talk about. God is so good. It's so much fun to see the way he works. But yes, we need to get comfortable and help people to be comfortable talking about these issues. What else do we want to do? Treatment. treatment. We want to get people into treatment. And what's a prerequisite to getting people into treatment? Testing. Testing. So we need to get people going for testing and getting tested. These are goals. And, and when I do the seminar, the, one of the first things that I do is get the participants to make a list of their goals. And we keep referring back to that all week long because it's if you don't know what your goals are, you'll never meet them. So I want to talk uh, about what we're doing. Well, we've talked about goals. Now, this may be the most important thing we say all afternoon. HIV AIDS education, HIV AIDS is not about a disease. It's not about medicine. It's not about facts and figures. It's not about statistics. It's not about information. It's about people. Lose sight of the people and you fail. Because you see... The, medicine, the disease doesn't matter if it's not for people. The statistics are all about individual people. The facts are about people. The medicine's about people. Keep the focus on the people. I've been doing this for a long time. And in the almost 25 years I've been involved in this, I've, I've had the opportunity to build relationships with some very, very special people living with this disease. And I've also been at the bedsides of a lot of friends dying with this disease. And every time that happens, I'm tempted to stop building those relationships. And then God reminds me, it's about people. And if I lose touch with the people, I fail. I won't be as successful. So please, whatever you do, remember this is about people. And that's what's key. Now, one of the things that we do early in every seminar is show a picture of people in the seminar. And, and normally I would have, I didn't have a chance to do it today, but I would put a, take a picture of the group in the group, of the people here, 
and put this picture up there. Normally I'd put a picture of you up there. And then under it I put the caption, they show all the signs and symptoms of infection with HIV. Is that true? Is it true that if I took a picture of this group here, I could put that same caption under it? Or this group, or this group? Do you show all the signs and symptoms of infection with HIV? Exactly. Thank you, brother. There are no signs or symptoms. Exactly. But every educational program I can find teaches the signs and symptoms of infection with HIV. There really aren't it. There aren't any even signs or symptoms of AIDS. There are signs and symptoms of the opportunistic infections that people can't fight off because of what HIV's done to their immune systems, but the People have been dying of this disease for maybe as long as a century. But nobody knew it existed till 1981. Why? Because it's a syndrome. It doesn't have a unique set of symptoms. So why do we always talk about signs and symptoms when we teach about HIV and AIDS? Well, it's because health educators traditionally, whenever you teach about a disease, you teach, teach the signs and symptoms. Why is this important? I'll tell you why. In East Africa, long before anybody ever heard of AIDS, they were talking about slim disease, people losing a lot of weight and dying. They still call it slim disease in East Africa. In fact, I was just in Uganda, and in the Luganda language, the word they use for AIDS is slim. Mr. Slim. Well, see, I was in Kenya a few years ago, talking with a man, and he said, I'm not going to get AIDS. I said, really? How are you going to avoid it? He said, oh, it's easy. I only have sex with fat women. <laughs> Slim disease? As long as I only have sex with fat women, I'm not going to get it. You see, when you teach signs and symptoms, you give people a false sense of security that they can identify who's infected based on symptoms. And so as long as I don't have sex with anybody that shows those symptoms, I'm safe. Is it true? I know a lot of fat people with AIDS. You see, what we need to be teaching people is that we all show all the signs and symptoms of infection. So the only safe assumption we can make is that everybody's infected. So we need to get away from teaching signs and symptoms. I'm getting away from my subject. But, you know, this prevention message, basically people think that this is what people with AIDS look like. And yes, this man did die of AIDS. But sometimes teaching about that does more damage than good. Okay. The seminars that we're doing are aimed at empowering local people to develop their own culture-specific strategies for HIV education. Now, there are a lot, there's a lot packed into that phrase. First of all, the key to HIV education is not information, but motivation. Information by itself does not influence behaviors in the way that you want to. Okay? If information by itself would accomplish the goal, the tobacco companies would have been out of business decades ago. True? Yeah. 
And let's face the facts, the behaviors that spread HIV are an awful lot more fun than smoking a cigarette. True? You have to motivate people if you want to accomplish these goals. Well, you see, effective motivation always comes from inside a culture, not from the outside. I travel all over the world. I've done seminars in 11 countries in the last three years. I have, every time I go, people say to me, well, Dwayne, you're going to Kenya and Uganda. How do you motivate Kenyans and Ugandans? And I say, I don't have a clue. I have no idea how to motivate people in those countries. But they know how. So what we need to be doing is empowering them to figure out what they can do to motivate their own people. Rather than, and one of the reasons that HIV education is failing around the world is because we Westerners seem to think that we have all the answers, we know the way to do things, so we'll develop curricula, we'll develop materials, we'll take them to then teach, teach them to use them, and they, they use them exactly the way they're told, and what's the end result? Their audiences say, that's good for the people that wrote it, but it doesn't apply to the way I live. It has to come from within the culture. So what we need to do is create environments in which local people can, can be challenged to think through what motivates people in this culture. So rather than a teacher, I'm really more of a facilitator. And, and I get to eavesdrop on all of these conversations about their cultures. And what a blessing. The things I get to learn are amazing. Like I was in Kenya last year with the Maasai. And they were saying one of the things that spreads the virus is female circumcision, female genital mutilation. Well, I knew that often that's done ceremonially with a series, on a series of women at the same time without uh, disinfecting the, the cutting instrument. That can spread the virus. I knew that um, uh, the, the scar tissue left from that procedure is less flexible, so there can be bleeding during intercourse. That can increase the spread. But I still asked, how does female circumcision spread the virus? And I was stunned. One of the ladies said, why, why did they do female circumcision traditionally? All the anthropologists tell us it's so that women won't enjoy sex so that they will be less tempted to stray from their husbands, right? One of the women said, when a woman's clitoris has been removed, she never achieves orgasm, so she's always looking for satisfaction, so she looks outside the family, outside the marriage. In other words, female circumcision is motivating women to have sex outside of marriage, which I'd never heard before. Isn't it fascinating? Some of the things that we learn when we have a chance to listen to people talking about their culture. So that's what I get to do in these seminars. The differences, there are differences between cultures, and those differences will shape the methods of communication, but the content needs to be the same. We need to make sure that people get the right content, get the messages that are necessary. Key elements include accurate information the extent of inaccurate information that's out there is staggering. The number of rumors, the number of myths, the number of misunderstandings is, I, every time I 
<clears throat> every time I travel, I, I learn new things that people are misunderstanding about this disease. Accurate information. But, now, I'm going to take a big risk considering this audience. But there's something I need to say, and with the kind of people who are here, it's scary to say this. But in my 25 years of experience as an HIV educator, I have found that the worst AIDS educators are healthcare professionals. Don't stone me, please. <laughs> Why do I say that? Why is it the first people people ask to do HIV education are doctors, doctors and nurses, right? Because doctors and nurses are supposed to know everything about every disease, which is also a myth. But <laughs> why are health care professionals the worst AIDS educators? Because they know so much. And they try to give people all that they know. You know, the facts that people need in order to accomplish those purposes can be communicated in five or ten minutes. You don't need to give people all of the, the information about this disease in order to accomplish your purposes of preventing it, slowing the spread, influencing behaviors, overcoming stigma, getting people to talk, getting people into treatment. They don't need to know all that much. And so my recommendation is that people only give that information that's necessary to accomplish their purposes and do it in language people will understand. So yes, accurate information is necessary, but limited accurate information, just as much as people really need. And by the way, we're a small enough group. I should have said this at the beginning. If you have any questions at any point, please raise your hand. Please interrupt me. Any questions, any comments at this point before I go on? Really? Yes? We haven't mentioned anything about condoms. Oh, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> we'll get there. Any questions about what we've talked about so far? Yes, sir? Can you elaborate on female circumcision? Female circumcision, what about it? Many countries have outlawed it, but it's still very actively practiced in a lot of, of countries. Basically a band from Senegal across uh, sub northern sub-Saharan Africa. It's very, very common over to Kenya and so on. Uh, different tribes do it, some tribes more than others. Uh, male circumcision, some tribes do it traditionally, others do not. Uh, but... And, and, and one of the interesting things to me is that what I'm, what I'm reading, what I'm learning is that the people who are most resistant to efforts to stop female circumcision are the women who were circumcised when they were young women. There's, the, the resistance isn't coming from the men so much as it is from the mothers, which I find very interesting. But yes, I believe female circumcision is something that should be stopped. There is no reason, no benefit to it. And it has lots of detrimental results. Does that respond to your question? Yes. Well, from what you said, though, it almost sounds as though you also were saying that women enjoy it. No, I'm not saying that they enjoy it. 
my understanding is that they tend to want their daughters to be circumcised because they fear that if they don't get circumcised, they won't be able to be married to the man that they want them to marry. It's necessary. They, the mothers still believe it's necessary, even though the, women's, the men say it's okay not to, the mothers still fear that the, the daughters will not be able to get into the relationships they want. Yes? There's also peer pressure. Um, yeah. I've worked in Ethiopia. Okay. There do it, some don't. Some do it very extremely. Some do a mild form. Right. There are, um, there are a wide variety of different kinds. Girls compare notes. It's not like here where whether you're having your period or not is a private thing. I mean, everybody knows everything about you, and the girls compare notes about whether they've been mutilated or whether they have not. And there's a lot of ostracism of the girls who have not been right. um, circumcised. Yeah. That plays into it. And sometimes again... The children are sometimes youngsters are circumcised, but in one of the tribes in Ethiopia, they do it on a girl's wedding day. Yeah. So See, this is another example of, of why or of, of a setting or a, a subject on which we need to go beyond just giving people facts and we need to be getting into the culture and, and the motivation for stopping female genital mutilation has to come from within the culture, from people who understand it and, and who can deal with all of these other issues in order to, to bring it to a to reduce the number of people, women that are getting it and the pressure to get it and all of that kind of thing. But yes, it's, it's very, very important that we do that. Okay, then we've already talked about motivation is, is critical. And, and by the way, when HIV education is done, what's the primary motivator that's used to motivate people to, to influence their behaviors? What's the motivator that's most often used in AIDS education? Fear, exactly. Fear of disease, trying to scare people out of getting the disease. Pictures of people emaciated and all of those kinds of things. Does fear work? Not over time. It may work for a short time, but over time it wears off. And remember, when we're talking about influencing behaviors relative to HIV and AIDS, we're not talking about influencing behaviors for a one-time decision. We're talking about influencing behaviors for a lifetime. We're talking about life choices, not momentary choices. Fear may be successful in motivating an immediate choice, but a life choice because the fear wears off. You find reasons to deny the fear. Fear doesn't work. We need to offer positive motivation. That's why we call our organization HIV Hope, because the motivation has to be based on hope. It needs to be giving people a reason. You see, it's all based on focusing on the future. So everything that anybody does to help with microfinance, food security, water security, all of those kinds of things that give, allow people to look to their future, value their future, have hope for their future, also helps slow the spread of HIV. People need hope. And you know what? The choices that keep you from infection with HIV, basically saving sex for marriage, avoiding the abuse of alcohol and other drugs, 
those choices were brilliant choices long before anybody ever heard of HIV or AIDS. The motivation for making those choices is so much more than just avoiding HIV and AIDS. The benefits that come from saving sex for marriage are so great that even if HIV didn't exist, it would still be a great idea. But nobody's talking about that. We need to be talking about the fact that the way to really experience abundant life, John 10.10, including abundant sexual life, if to save sex for marriage. Is that what you see in the media? Is that what movies and television tell us? No, movies and television tell us that the people that are enjoying sex the most are people who are having sex outside of marriage, right? What's the research tell us? The research tells us that people who are faithful in marriage have sex more often and enjoy it more than people who are not. But we're not hearing that. That news needs to get out. One of the questions that I always ask in the seminar, I ask people, what are the things that motivate people in your culture to save sex for marriage, or to have sex outside of marriage, either before marriage or not be faithful in marriage? That's an easy list to make. They can come up with all kinds of things that motivate people to that. Then after we've put together that list, we say, okay, is everyone in your country having sex outside of marriage? Well, no, of course not. Why not? What's motivating people in your culture to not have sex outside of marriage? How many of you ever have ever really thought that through? What are the things that motivate people in our culture? I did this in a seminar in, in Thailand at a Bible college, and the students came, could only come up with one answer. And that was because God said so. And so we talked about that for a long time. I said, now, now did God sit up in heaven when he was creating us and flip a coin and say, if it's heads, I'll tell them to save sex for marriage. If it's tails, I'll tell them to have sex with everybody they can. Was it by chance that God told us to save sex for marriage? No. God told us to save sex for marriage because he loves us. Because saving sex for marriage is where you enjoy it the most. God created sex as a gift to us for our enjoyment. He wants us to enjoy it. So there are all kinds, there are hundreds of reasons, benefits that motivate people to save sex for marriage. So motivation is really, really key. We've already talked about behavior change or influencing behaviors. Thanks to John. Jumped us ahead. But you see, one of the things that that I like to do when I do seminars, I never pass out an outline and I never pass out notes for people to, you know, outlines for people to fill in the blanks. Number one, because I never do things in the same order. I take them as I did with your question, and whenever, whenever the audience brings up something, that's when we deal with it. So we're constantly adjusting the order of things. The other thing is, if if I hand out to you an outline and, and, you know, some statements and you fill in the blanks. I'm deciding what's most important for you to remember. Does that empower you? No. I say, people, every seminar I do, they say, why, aren't you, why haven't you given us notes? Why haven't you given us fill in the blanks? I say, because you know better than I do what you need to remember. You know what's important for you. You decide that. I want you to start with a blank sheet of paper and just you put down what you think is important. 
That's empowering, right? Questions, comments? If I don't break this cord sometime today, I'm going to be amazed. <laughs> okay. Our organization, HIV Hope, we've, we've put together a list of the things that are the foundational concepts that we build things on. And these are really important in, in empowering people to make choices or to, to do effective HIV education. One is that biblical principles guide everything we do. Folks, let's never get away from that. You know what? Christians are the most effective HIV educators. We really are. We have tools at our disposal. We have things we can offer to people that nobody else can. I said, I said hope is the key motivator, right? Is there any source of hope that will never disappoint you? Is there any, any source of hope that will never disappoint? You know the answer to this question. Is there? Yes. What is it? Jesus. A relationship with Jesus Christ is the only hope that will never disappoint. Christians are the only ones that can offer hope that won't disappoint. Everybody is tempted to do things that put them at risk of infection, Christians and non-Christians. What's the only source of power to resist that temptation? It's the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Again, something that only Christians can offer. And yet too often, instead of being in the forefront of HIV education, the church is sitting on the sidelines saying, I don't think we want to get involved in this. This is kind of a sticky issue and, and it deals with stuff that we really aren't comfortable talking about. So the church stays on the sidelines and doesn't get involved. We're the only people, folks, that have any hope of turning around this epidemic. We've got to be involved. Would you agree with that? We've talked about it's about people, and we have to remember that. Hope is key. This picture is, is the participants in the seminar that I did, a seminar I did in Cairo a couple years ago. And it's, it's an interesting group because Egyptians don't get AIDS. Did you know that? Egyptians just don't get AIDS. Just ask them. Egyptians don't get this disease. I... Oh, most, uh, yeah, right. So I, I left Cairo convinced that it's true that denial is not just a river in Egypt. But anyway, <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> so the only group that was interested in, in participating in a seminar was this group, and these are Sudanese refugees to Cairo. In fact, the, one of the largest Christian populations in Cairo is Sudanese refugees. And these are people who are refugees, and yet Jesus is giving them hope. There is hope. People need hope. We need to value human life. And HIV educators need to value human life. They need to value the lives of each and every individual in their audience. 
They need to communicate, your life is valuable, you're important, your future is important, what you can accomplish is important. These are key elements. We also need to communicate that people living with AIDS, PLWHA, people living with HIV and AIDS are valuable. I was in Gabon earlier this year, spoke in a church, and after the, the session, some of the people there came and got me and asked me to go and pray with this lady. She wasn't from that church, but I had preached in that church the previous Sunday morning, and her, her niece brought her to this question and answer session we did one afternoon. When I sat down to talk with her, there were tears streaming down her face. She said, I've been living with AIDS for years, but I haven't been able to tell anybody in my church or any of my friends. It's the first time I've ever felt comfortable telling anybody. I don't know why she felt comfortable talking to me, but somehow God gave her the comfort. We talked for a while, and then uh, I said, I, I, I don't want to just leave you here just having prayed for you. I, I want you to have contact with someone who can help you. So I asked her for permission, and Martin was there. He's an elder in that church, and she gave me permission to call him over. And, and he's following up with her. This lady didn't have a relationship with Christ, but I believe she will because of what Martin's doing. We need to be valuing people who are living with this disease and letting them know we value them. I was in Estonia last year, and I met Oleg. His pastor took me to meet him. 27-year-old young man living with AIDS. We were in, you can see his, the walls, the wallpaper on the walls of his apartment are falling down. It, apartment is too fancy a word for it. It was a single room. I asked him if he was taking ARVs. He is. I asked him about his diet, and he's not eating very much. Asked him about exercise. He's, he's on the fifth floor of a, of a building with no elevator, but he doesn't even walk up and down the stairs. He almost never leaves his apartment. Well, you know, with ARVs, if you don't have good diet and you're not getting exercise, they're not going to be very helpful. So while we're talking, I suddenly noticed that there was a, a, a book open on his pillow and a, a kind of a makeshift bookshelf on the wall. So I said, Alec, do you like to read? And it was the first time I saw any kind of a smile on his face. He said, yeah, I really do. So the pastor asked him, he only spoke Russian, the pastor asked him if he could go to the library and get books. He said, well, I borrowed some books from the library and didn't take them back, so I'm not welcome there. Suddenly, God put an idea in my head. So I asked the pastor, I wonder if there are people in your church that have some Christian books that they've read and don't need anymore, and they'd be willing to donate to a church library that Oleg could organize. When the pastor translated that to Oleg, all of a sudden we got this smile, two thumbs up. That night I did a, a training at the church, and Oleg was the first one there. He'd shaved, he'd taken a shower, he had clean clothes on, and a smile you couldn't wipe off his face. He's now walking two or three kilometers three times a day each way to the church to organize a library. Nobody in the church except the pastor knows that Oleg is living with this disease. But suddenly he's got a reason to live. And he's making a difference in his community. Folks... People living with this virus have something to give, and it's not just things relating to HIV. Oleg's 
ministry in his community has nothing to do with his disease. Don't limit people with this, this virus to dealing, doing things that deal with the disease. They're people. It's about people. And different people have different gifts, different callings, different abilities. Use those gifts and callings. And as you do, you give them a reason to live and want to live. Equipping, empowering people. This is a group in, in Harare in uh, Zimbabwe that were participants in a seminar I did there. And, and they're actively involved in doing things in their country that are making a difference. This is, is at Karanda um, Mission Hospital in, in uh, Zimbabwe. It was funny. I did a seminar, two seminars, actually, in this mission hospital. And by the end of the week, I was hearing stories about how everybody in the villages was talking about this seminar. I said, what are they saying? I said, well, they can't make any sense out of it because they know there's an AIDS seminar going on in this building, but every time they walk by, everybody's laughing, and they can't connect the laughter with AIDS. It just doesn't make sense to them. So at the end of the week, all of the village chiefs and village headmen asked to meet with me. I thought, wow, what an opportunity. I get to meet with these traditional leaders. I had a couple hours with them. So we went over the basics about AIDS and answered their questions. And then I looked at them and I said, you have tremendous influence over the people in your villages. How are you going to use that influence to help your people avoid dying of this disease? I had them break up into small groups, four or five. And while they were talking, suddenly this idea came to, and I didn't understand it, but James here uh, was in the seminar that week, and he was translating for me. And suddenly I went up to him and I said, I don't know why I'm saying this, but the rest of the meeting, don't translate anything in English. Just do it all in Shona. So he did, and they put together a list of 15 different action points that they were going to do to slow the spread of HIV. And they're in, in fact, the first one on their list. Now, these are the people that maintain the culture. These are the traditional leaders in their villages. Folks, a lot of cultures need to change in order to slow the spread of this disease, but we can't change them. But these folks can. You know what's the number one idea on their list? Discourage wife inheritance. We didn't even talk about it. Now, wife inheritance is a very fundamental concept in many African traditions and cultures where if a man dies, his brother or closest male relative inherits the wife. So if the man died of AIDS, the wife is probably infected who infects the brother and it spreads that way. God put the facts together with that tradition in their mind and they came up with that. They came up with 15. In fact, many of the ones on this list were things that had to do with, we need to get somebody to come in and teach this group in our village, or this group, or that group. Well, who are they going to have come? The Christians that were in the seminar that week. So God set it up so that they, they didn't have to go to the, the chiefs to ask for opportunities to teach. God set it up so that they, the chiefs were asking them to come. The last word I had from there, they're still meeting. The last meeting that I heard about, they met for two full days, and instead of the 35 that met the first of the day I was there, there are 200 of them. And it's all Zimbabweans, not a Westerner involved. They're empowered. They're doing it. 
they're actually slowing the spread of the virus in their communities. And that gets me excited. Accurate information, we've already talked about that. Uh, identifying myths and correcting them. One of the things in Uganda is that there is still a lot of belief in child sacrifice. There's a lot of traditions out there that need to be identified. One of the things I love to do on the very first day of the seminar, I'll say to the people, the participants, I can make you one promise about our week together. And here's my promise. I promise you that every one of you by the end of this week will have said at least one thing that will be wrong. Now, that's not the kind of promise they were hoping for. You know? <laughs> and I say, it's okay. Because when you say something that's wrong, it's not going to be your fault. It's my fault because I haven't taught you well enough yet. So it's not, you're not to blame. And I said, but you know what? Whenever you say something that's wrong, I'm going to be very, very, very happy. I love it when you say things that are wrong. And they look at me and they think, this white man is crazy. <laughs> I am, but not because of that. But, you know, the reason I say that to them is because I love it when people say things that are wrong. When do you learn more? When everybody says things that are correct all the time or when somebody says something wrong and you have the opportunity to think it through and figure out why it's wrong and why people think something that's wrong. We learn a lot more from that. In fact, I, I hope that I tell them, I hope you'll say every wrong thing you possibly can this week. Because you say something wrong next week, we won't be together and, and help be able to correct each other. And, and there are so many rumors you've heard, and I don't know what rumors you've heard. You need to tell me so that we can talk them through. One of the rumors that many of you have heard about is the rumor that, that uh, if you're infected with HIV, you can be cured by having sex with a virgin. We need to work through that. We need to talk about that. Now, there's some evidence now that maybe that's a rumor that there are not a lot of people acting on. I hope that's true. But we need to be overcoming these rumors. When I was in Swaziland, they told me that you could be infect or you could be cured if you had sex with a virgin or an old woman or a fat woman or an ugly woman. Or a white woman. Or a white woman. Oh, I hadn't heard that one. It's a dangerous place for an old, fat, ugly white nun. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I should have resisted that. <laughs> We need to be overcoming stigma. What's stigma? What is stigma? Somebody in Uganda in a seminar a couple weeks ago said it's pointing the finger at somebody. It's identifying somebody as different from me. I, as an example of it, I told them, when I first got off the airplane, and as long as I've been in Africa, I have been stigmatized. I said, really? I said, yeah, there's a word I hear everywhere I go. I said, ah, mzungu. Those of you that have been in Africa, there are various versions and different in languages, but it means white person. And everywhere you go, you hear that word. In the, in the tourist market in Kampala, there are T-shirts that say, my name is not mzungu. <laughs> Stigma is not necessarily a negative thing, but it's something that identifies you as different. Now, in the case of HIV and AIDS, it is something that's negative. What happens as a result of stigma? Discrimination. Treating people differently. 
And the discrimination is horrific in many cases. What happens as a result of it? People don't get tested. People don't take medications. Uh, uh, Susie uh, Snyder, in her seminar this morning, her breakout session this morning, was talking about with the Maasai, one of the things that they do because of nutrition problems, when somebody is diagnosed as having HIV, they'll give them some food. People actually refuse to take the food because anybody coming out of the clinic carrying a bag of food is assumed to be HIV positive. They would rather not get the food than have people know that they're infected. That's huge. Imagine what that's doing to the spread of this disease. How do you overcome stigma? First, you help people identify why, why it's stigmatized. You need to talk that through. But you know, I think the most effective way to overcome stigma, if you can do it, is to find somebody who's living with the virus who's willing to stand up and say so and let people know and let people get to know somebody as a person. You know, discrimination is something that involves treating somebody as a member of a group that's different from you. Suddenly, when you get to know somebody as an individual, it takes that away. So one of the keys, one of the most effective things that we can do in HIV education is finding people who are willing to self-identify as, as living with the virus and, and getting them to come and answer questions and help people to think it through. Yes? Is it, better, is it better to have a, a, the person living with the virus be somebody that we would bring from America or to have somebody who's local? It's not better as much as would it be effective at all to have somebody who's American? It would not be as effective to bring an American living with the virus because you want it to be somebody that they can identify with, somebody who is as, as close to them as possible. Also, it's always best to pick somebody who doesn't fit the stereotypes about somebody who's infected. So if the belief is that, that, that only men become infected, if you can find a woman, that's great. In the United States, if the belief is that only, people, only men who have sex with other men get infected, get a woman or somebody that's heterosexual. You know, anything that you can do to break down the stereotypes will help. Great questions. Yes? Yes, I'd just like to give a quick question. All right. Uh, I live with HIV AIDS myself. And, uh, I was not a believer. Um, I was a drug user living in the street. But I didn't think Christ would love me because I was affected by HIV. And it was my physician that came to me and told me about Christ. I accepted Christ right there. Today, I travel all over the world. I travel to Africa quite frequently. I was just in Uganda. And the thing that I find is that to say that Christ loves me, even though I have AIDS. Because for a long time, people that have AIDS feel that's a punishment. And I'm right. punished. I'm not being punished. Christ loves you just as much. You still have that freedom through Christ. Jim, thank you.
Thank you for sharing your own story. That's a blessing. I appreciate that. Did, were you all able to hear him? Yes. Okay. I want to try something. Would you help me for a minute? Come up and help me. I want to try something. I want to do a little bit of a role play. And you look like you'd be a good actress. So, Are you a good actress? No. Oh, I'm sure you are. Come on. In, in our little role play, you and I are friends. Mm-hmm. And you found out that you're infected with the AIDS virus. And you've decided I'm somebody that you can trust and tell me that you're you're living with it. Mm-hmm. So we're, we meet somewhere, and, and you're just going to tell me that you're infected. So what's your name? Jan. Good friend, Jan. <laughs> Hi, Jan. How are you? Oh, not so good. Really? What's the matter? Well, I don't know. I kind of feel like I need to talk to someone. Okay. Maybe you. I, I would be honored. Well, but you can't tell anybody. You can trust me, Jan. I mean, not anybody. Okay. But I saw the doctor today. Really? Mm. Is there something wrong? Mm. What is it? Well, and I mean, you can't let anybody know. Okay. But I, I have an infection. Oh, really? What kind of an infection? Is bad it a one. swine flu? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, wor- worse. What? Much worse. worse than swine flu? Mm. What is it? Now you're gonna probably not like me anymore. I like just, you, Jan. Okay, I have the AIDS virus. You have the AIDS virus. Don't say it no, out I'm, loud. I'm sorry, Jan. Yes. How can I help you? I don't know. I want to be your friend, and I'm not. I don't know. It's not going to change our friendship. I don't know. No, it won't. All right. What did I do when she said she had the AIDS virus? Hmm? I didn't gasp. Okay. What else did I do? Didn't overreact. Didn't overreact. What else did I do? Actually, actually, I did. She saw it. You didn't. One of the first things I did, actually, the first thing I did when she said it was that I took a half a step back. And you saw it. You didn't see it, but she did. How did it make you feel? Very noticeable. Yeah, yeah, very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Let me say this. I did it for years. And my guess is you do too. It's a very natural, normal response. But it makes people who are living with this feel that you're afraid of them. Mm-hmm. It confirms their fears. Right? And it was very small step you took. Oh, it was very small. Yeah, it was intentionally very small because I didn't want them to see it, but I knew you would. Mm-hmm. Now, let's do this one more time. You did a great job. No, you're doing great. Come on, come on, come on. See? They love you. Okay, I want to do it again, and this time I want to show you what I've had to train myself to do. And you, we can cut to the chase. Cut to the chase. Yeah. Okay, I have an infection. And what's, what kind of infection is that? One. Okay, Jan, what, what is it? AIDS. Jan, I'm sorry. Better. Much better. See, just a touch on the shoulder makes all the difference in the world. How does it make you feel? Much better. It tells you that you really care about that me. I care about you. It also tells you I'm not afraid and of you. And you're not going to leave me. And I'm not going to leave you. And it says that in a way that my words could never yeah. say. Very just good. this is so simple. Yep. Thank you, Jan. You're welcome. Well done. Now, when I was in Egypt, I did this same thing. And the man I asked to play that role is this man down in the front who is a physician. And he got up 
And I told him what I wanted him to do. And he sat down. He said, I can't say those words. I asked this gentleman to do it. It took him 10 minutes. You thought it took you a long time to get around to it. It took, he was saying, now I've got a problem. You know what the problem, you can guess, can't you? (laughs) Suddenly I realized, if it's that hard, and it wasn't easy for you to say, if it's that hard for somebody to say this as an actor, how much harder is it when it's real? Folks, when somebody trusts you and tells you they're living with this virus, wow, what an incredible compliment that is to you. Cherish that and respect it. And understand, as Jan said, somebody tells you that, you have absolutely no right to share it with anybody else. That person is the only person who has the right to decide who finds out, how they find out, who they hear it from, when they hear it. That's their personal information. Respect that. Okay, we're running out of time. I thank you for coming. I hope this has been helpful to you. By the way, if you know other people that you think would benefit from this same session, uh, there's been a change in the schedule. I'm going to be doing this same breakout session tomorrow afternoon in this same room at 1 o'clock. So you can invite other people to come. Uh, I'm with an organization called New Mission Systems International. And if you're interested in information about our mission agency, I've got some here. We also have a booth. Uh, if, if you, One of the things I'm praying for, and I appreciate your prayer with me, I'm praying that God will give other people a passion for doing the same kind of thing I'm doing. I would love to have people that I could train to do these same kind of seminars that could travel with me and, and you know, slowly take over and start doing them because we've got far more inv- in invitations than I can f- handle, and I'm not a young man anymore. This needs to keep going long after I won't be able to do it any longer. So pray with me, and if there's anybody that has any interest in that, I'd love to visit with you. If you have any questions, or if you work somewhere around the world and you think this is something that would be effective in where you're working, let's talk about it. My business cards are up here. Love to stay in touch with you. Folks, thank you so much. I pray that this has been helpful for you. God bless you. Question?